Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. We are doing our first episode that is by request. Someone sent in this topic, wanted to know more, and I think we needed to cover it anyway because it is going to set the stage for future conversations that we have around calves and ruminant nutrition in general. So we needed to cover this. We're going to try to make it as interesting as possible as we walk our way through the ruminant digestive system. Please enjoy the episode. Please continue to send us any scathing rebuttals, remarks, comments, anything you want to hear, suggestions out there that you have. If you need information on this subject, if you want more or you want to dig in deeper, please visit extension.umn.edu. Thank you again for listening. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. We are here today to cover what I have been told is an incredibly boring subject uh, by my co-hosts here today, but we're going to do it. We're gonna Only try Emily to- said that. Only Emily <laughs> said that. It is not boring at all. I, I believe you agreed with me, Bradley. Who knows? We're going we're gonna to try to walk through it, go through some of the basics. It is the ruminant digestive system. We'll be highlighting kind of ways it's different from a non-ruminant, and we'll start by talking about calves. There's a lot of things to consider when you're raising a calf, when you're trying to develop a ruminant, because it's not where they start. They start as a uh, non-ruminant animal when they, when they hit the ground. So they're only drinking milk, and that rumen, and, and I've, I've looked for it when I, I've done necropsies, and it's the size of a, a, it's no bigger than a baseball when you start. Uh, it's so small. And so that's because they don't need it yet. Uh, So when we're doing that, we have an esophageal groove, which funnels uh, milk away from the the rumen to the abomasum. And that's how we we get by or bypass the rumen while we're on milk. So we'll jump right into one of the topics that comes up all the time. How do you get that that rumen developed? How do you get it bigger? How do you grow the papillae on the inside that are supposed to be there? Brad, what do you think? Grain. Grain. That's, that's the, that's the big, the big way to get uh, that rumen development, I think is now, obviously some people are going to disagree with me. That's normal. Well, yeah, this seems like a pretty controversial opinion coming from Mr. Grazing Systems himself here. Dr. Grazing Systems. I I have done some work with the Wasika calf facility uh, in Minnesota where they feed lots of calves, do lots of studies. We've looked at, you know, calf growth from birth until weaning. And really the thing that really comes back to it all is grain. And it's maybe not necessarily grain as much. It's, you know, how much you know, I had a graduate student do a study, looked at metabolizable energy in the grain. And the more metabolizable energy that the calf gets uh, through the grain, the rumen probably uh, is developed more, they grow more and, and do a little bit better and have less health problems. Yeah, what we're really looking for is that that rumen development so that that rumen is ready to go when we wean that calf. Uh, we can't can't leave them short on that and then expect them to perform when they can't get nutrients from their rumen like they're supposed to. The studies I see are, are great. The images are perfect. That's, that's the, the most striking thing about some of these, these studies is that when they feed that calf milk only as a control, 
milk plus uh, some type of forage and then milk plus grain only. The pictures of those developing rumens are vastly different, right? So you see that the grain is truly the factor that grows those papillae and, and gets that rumen ready to use, right? Gets it ready to use nutrients on its own without having to depend on milk as well. So I, I, I really, the most successful calf raisers I see don't even incorporate forage uh, until after weaning or, or maybe start to incorporate it pretty late. Certainly not before six weeks, I don't think is really necessary. You on the same page there, Brad? Yeah, you know, that's probably one of the biggest debated things in the calf world, and it still happens today, is when should I feed hay? You know, some you it's fun going to meetings because you'll have uh, very differing opinions and some people will uh, love to challenge each other on it. Some people think feeding hay at two to three weeks helps with rumen development uh, along with grain. And some people say, wait till eight weeks uh, or later uh, to start feeding hay. At our research dairy, we don't start till about eight weeks of age uh, to feed uh, grain or sorry, uh, hay. Emily, so, do, you, do you remember what you did growing up? We did grain. Grain, and when did you start offering it? Right away. Right away. Perfect. So this isn't a new concept that we're talking about, I don't think, but it, for, for whatever reason, we still there's plenty of argument around it still. Well, that's just because we like arguing about things. That's true. I think that's part of it. The, the key is that you, it's time. It's all time dependent, and that rumen has to be ready to go if you're going to pull the milk and if it's not ready to go, that's where you see calves stumble. It takes a good five weeks minimum, five weeks minimum to develop that rumen with consistent grain intake. So if you don't offer grain right away, you're, you're cutting yourself short. You're not giving yourself enough time, especially if you're, you're weaning early or doing something like that. So feed grain. However, uh, here's, uh -oh. here's Here, my, here here we go. <laughs> I did a study, me and my grad student, my first grad student, we did a study a long time ago looking at grass-fed dairy steers. We did this in dairy steers, and we didn't feed calves any grain. Uh, and they were actually eating hay at two to three weeks of age, and they grew about 1.5 pounds per day. Now, the ones that we fed grain to were doing about two pounds a day, but I think that some people equate with, oh, if you don't feed grain, you're going to have small calves and they're not going to grow. In my mind, you know, getting 1.5 pounds a day off of milk and hay, I was pretty happy with that, I think. Yeah, I would, I would be happy with that too. You know, 1.5 is what we target to get the benefits that we see later in life from that, that average daily gain pre-weaning. And I, I think that's good. I'm just more concerned about are they ready when you take the milk away? That, that would be my biggest concern if you're weaning at eight weeks, let's say. Uh, is that rumen ready to support that entire calf without additional calories from milk? That's a good question because we face that now. I think a lot of dairy uh, farmers are facing that when if we're feeding all this milk that all the researchers like me tell you you should feed more milk. Uh, eight liters, 12 liters, uh, you know, there's a lot of people doing ad lib stuff now. I think we've talked about that before, you know, is that rumen developed enough? So when they get weaned 
do they have you know setbacks because they don't know what to do except to drink milk and you know now now they're suffering because maybe that rumen isn't developed enough because they haven't eaten enough grain while they were uh, you know on an sort of ad lib situation but it grows yeah. nice big calves but you see that uh, you know maybe that rumen development uh, sort of suffers and they have a setback when they when they go to weaning to me part of that has to be created to, or related to a microbiome issue in that rumen when when we switch rations and i've been getting this question a lot on the beef side lately people are stepping cattle back from you know high mega cal rations to try to slow them down a lot of questions about what to do with ration changes. And we know that the microbiome in that rumen takes two, 10, 10 to 20 days or two to three weeks to, to change, to fully change. Uh, and if you're going from a high concentrate to a forage, it's completely different uh, microbes that you need. So if you're not developing that microbiome ahead of time, and then all of a sudden you just switch on a dime, uh, you're going to have an issue. You, you have to because nothing's set up for success in that calf. I think that's a lot of it. And hopefully we can learn more about that as we go. It's definitely a, an area of interest that is coming up more and more and people are looking into more and more often. Let's get away from calves. We got we to gotta cover the rest of this digestive system <laughs> and how it develops. So We've got so we're going to be rummaging through the rumen? <laughs> you could say that. You could say Adventuring that. Adventuring across the Mason. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow, you're, you're full Roving of through the reticulum. Roving through the reticulum. That's a good one. I like that one. Meandering about the omasum. That's good. That's good. You got, wow. you got all sorts of stuff today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm full of tricks. Well, let's, let's start higher than that. Uh, digestion in... Almost everything starts up top at the mouth, right? Cows, you got you to gotta get it in the mouth first, but then... Moving through the mouth. Moving through the mouth. <laughs> you, have to, you have to break down particle size, add saliva to the mix. There's enzymes in the saliva that, that add to the digestive process. Uh, in cows, actually, saliva is hugely, hugely important hugely important uh, as a buffering agent as well. So it starts there. We go down the esophagus into the rumen, which I like to think of as a giant fermentation vessel. Exiting through the esophagus. <laughs> Exiting through the esophagus. <laughs> Exiting through the esophagus into the rumen, which is a giant fermentation vessel. It's huge in an adult cow. It's massive. It's massive. If you if you picture a fifty five gallon drum, you're really not that far off. It's it's huge. It's big, uh, and it holds a lot of liquid uh, and a and a lot of material in there. And the the main purpose is to ferment to to get rumen microbes and bacteria, protozoa, other microbes, yeast involved in the digestive process. Uh, of the material that's in there and and it's what makes a cow so special because they can use material that not a whole lot of other species can use and including humans so they can use uh, food sources that we cannot and turn it into something that we can use in the form of milk or beef and meat about what about ph okay, ph sorry. that's what we got to talk about all the time with the rumen right the rumen yes the the ph is is 
important because the bugs that are in there are, are very sensitive to the the correct pH. And if you're at the wrong pH, you can create a proportion of microbes uh, that's actually harmful to the cow. Uh, rumen acidosis leads to a lot of a lot of bad things and sets up kind of the first knocks down that first domino in a wave of all of these other things that can happen to create a sick animal. They make good sensors that measure rumen pH too. Really? That you can put in, yeah, precision technology. We need to talk about precision technology more. They got some boluses. We have some at Morris, of course. I have all the, the cool gadgets. Is that the same Simtech bolus? Simtech bolus? Smax, Smax Tech, yeah. Smax yeah they'll, tech. They'll, that will measure rumen pH. Uh, cool. uh, if you get that bolus, um, it'll do that for you. And is that like a constant read or an alert when it changes or? Uh, well, it, yeah, it reads uh, constantly what the room and pH is, but if it changes, then it will alert you that there's something wrong with this cow from a nutritional standpoint. That's cool. It's kind of cool. Absolutely. I don't know. Technology in my mind is, is going to change the dairy industry, but that's a subject for another day. <laughs> that could, that could be a whole podcast. We can, <laughs> exactly. we can get into it. We that talked will be about a whole series of podcasts. Oh, that's yeah. right. Well, so I don't know how many, how much of the specifics we want to get into about where cows get their energy and protein, but it, it's the main function of the rumen is to allow the bacteria to do work on materials we provide give us volatile fatty acids, which are the main source of our cow's energy, uh, which are absorbed through the rumen wall. We can, we can probably leave it there. I don't think we need to go too far into that. Um, I don't think anyone wants to get all the way back into like the Krebs cycle and things like that. Oh boy, I am not a nutritionist. (laughs) I did not study nutrition in grad school. So I and when yeah. I took nutrition in undergrad and on one of our tests, we had to draw the Krebs cycle. I left that page blank. <laughs> it, it's, it's a rough one. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm second guessing myself to make sure I even said the right cycle. Is it the, is it the Krebs cycle or is it a different cycle <laughs> from organic chem? I don't know. You're the vet. <laughs> I don't know that stuff anymore. That was a long time ago. What's the Krebs cycle? It's how you make, it's how you make uh, ATP, I think, I hope. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm right. I think I'm right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right. right. We'll go with that. Group consensus, Joe's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is ATP. Okay, good. There's your science good. lesson for the day. Remembered something. You'll have to memorize that sometime in school at some point, and then you'll forget it like I did too, so... <laughs> The reticulum usually gets its own section. You know, it's part of the rumen in my mind, and I don't think of it as separate because it really is just a compartment of the rumen. But it does get it. It's always considered a separate compartment. It has some special functions, and it really is uh, different looking than the rest of the rumen, and that's why we treat it as a separate compartment. It's honeycomb shape. If you've ever been able to to cut open a rumen or had the chance to necropsy a cow, you will see that it it looks like little honeycombs and it's where everything falls because of gravity and the way that that compartment is situated and shaped. That's where you get all of your metal and anything else that cow's not supposed to eat that's heavy. It ends up there. Uh, So if you're giving a magnet, that's where it ends up. 
and if you're looking for hardware disease or you're trying to find a wire uh, that was poking through the diaphragm and tickling the heart, that's where you'll find it coming through the reticulum. That's the only time I ever think about the reticulum is when I think about hardware. Absolutely. That's it. I don't know. That, that, that's really all there is to say about it. It doesn't, it looks different than the rest of the room and it's just a, a separate compartment, but it, it's where everything heavy falls that they're not supposed to eat. That's where your magnet sits. The omasum is next. We go out of the, the rumen into the omasum is interesting. It's a big ball. It's like a basketball. It's usually pretty hard uh, because it absorbs water, dries everything out. And it looks, if you cut it open, it looks like the pages of a book. It's just a drying chamber to prepare uh, feed and everything else to go into the abomasum, which is our probably most troubling stomach or piece of the digestive system. And the one we talk about the most on the dairy side, uh, just because it tends to move around and get in the wrong spot. But that's the one that's just like most non-ruminant stomachs. It's just very similar to our stomach, uh, similar anatomy produces acid just like ours and everything else. And that's the one that gets into the wrong spot and goes to the left, creates our left displaced abomasum. Twists on the right, creates a right displaced abomasum. Okay, let's talk about rumination. Yeah. How, how often should that rumen contract every minute, Emily? No idea. No idea? I thought you were on a quiz bowl team at some point. You could have answered that. Well, I was on the quiz bowl team quite some time ago. So my dairy trivia is not where it once was. They didn't teach you that in Lesueur County? No. Well, it's, it's, it's one to two times every minute. So if you see your veterinarian out there listening to the Reuben, what he's really checking for is contraction and the strength of that contraction and how often it's contracting. One to two times a minute, pretty strong. You should be able to actually visually see it contracting and coming out. Uh, so that's rumen contractions. Also part of rumination is cud chewing. So you probably notice that a lot when you see cows, they're constantly chewing a piece of cud, mostly because it takes up about, what do you say, Brad, 30, 40, 50% of their day, they're cud chewing and trying to ruminate. Yeah. 50% of the day, probably. Yeah. It, it's, it's a big portion of that. It's bringing, bringing stuff back up from from the rumen to rechew, break down some more, add saliva. And like we said, saliva is a big piece of uh, the digestive process with enzymes, but also to uh, buffer the rumen and create, keep that pH where we want it. So who's got a guess for how much saliva a cow produces every day? 80 gallons. 20 gallons, 20 gallons, 20 gallons is, is closer. Yeah. yeah. It can be even higher than that, depending on the diet. And then that, that influences a lot. So the higher uh, forages uh, you'll produce more saliva because there's just more to chew. It could be as high as 50 gallons a day. So if you think about, so I was close. Yeah. You were close. But if you think about, you know, 45, 50 gallons, uh, just think about, this is the part I love to tell people because it really makes it real. Ten five-gallon buckets of saliva. That that's, that's gross. Nasty. That's nasty. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. something I would not be interested in. 
but it's important and that and they produce a lot of it because it's that important they need it to digest they need it to buffer that rumen uh that rumen needs to stay in in that six to seven six point two to six point eight ph that's where we want it to stay for most situations and most diets and saliva is a big piece of that we got we got sensors that can measure uh, rumination so all right so yeah. so we the the takeaway is to just always just use a sensor. a sensor just use a sensor they'll tell you everything you need <laughs> well, to know. The story. don't worry about the rest of this all right exactly <laughs> that's what my life is just just put a sensor on it and it's good enough good enough yeah it'll tell you when something's wrong that's, <laughs> it's perfect perfect what else do we got to do oh should we talk about we should talk about this trouble troublesome abomasum a little more it likes to float and go to the wrong spot it yeah that's to, rude i know it's super rude uh and the cow doesn't appreciate it either uh the most common one is that left displaced abomasum you hear about that all the time I'm, if you have a dairy at some point on your dairy you're it's going to happen regardless of how good a job you do. And the vet's going to have to come out and fix it if you want to keep that cow around. You just had one, didn't you, Brad? I saw a post. We've had two DAs in what? the last. Yes. That's like. Brad, you're slacking. Exactly. My gosh, that's two DAs in like seven years. I don't know what was going on. Actually, it's interesting. That is it was, interesting. It was uh, mom and daughter both had a DA at the same time. That's uh, who time. it was. So Keeping it all genetics, in the family. Is genetics. Definitely. Confirmation, I think, plays a part in it. Um, post-calving is our most common time to get a, a left-displaced apomasum and LDA. Uh, and we think it has to do with just a lack of room and fill, that calf leaving, all of a sudden there's lots of space. That abomasum doesn't actually have to get all the way across on its own to flip. It just, part of it does. When that part fills up with gas, it floats and it goes over to the left, which it shouldn't be there. And then you got to call someone like me to do the surgery, which is fun. I, it's one of the things I miss. I miss doing a DA mostly because, you know, it usually meant I had a designated time to talk to the farmer and catch up and hang out. It was interesting. The one cow that we had, you can, you could hear it when you, you know, you could tell everybody how you find a DA. Use a stethoscope and you kind of ping on their side. And you, this one had a, a nice snare drum sound to it. It was uh, quite, it was there. I haven't thought about pinging a cow for a while now. But yeah, it's, it, it becomes second nature. I actually have like a cowless on my finger from flicking cows so much. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> Bradley didn't like that. He thought it was gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's right here you see it you see it <laughs> but the uh yeah to so if people don't know i think the the most common way i can describe the sound that you're hearing is is what you're doing is is creating a sound wave in the cow and because you have a uh, air and gas under pressure because that abomasum is really tight and full of uh, gas and and some liquid it creates a, a high-pitched ping sound and the only way I think you can recreate it in everyday life that, that people will know what you're talking about is if you leave a basketball out overnight uh, and then the next morning you bounce it on the ground, you'll hear that noise. You'll hear that high pitch ping noise. So yeah, it, it, it looks really goofy when you're looking for one and you have your 
stethoscope just ran on the on the cow side and you're you're actually flicking it with your finger to create the sound wave and that that's what you went to school for eight years for right i went to school for a long time to be able to do that yes uh but it can happen on the right as well uh that abomasum likes to uh rotate sorry this way rotate um you know they can't see you right yeah i know (laughs) but you guys can so (laughs) but but it, it rotates uh, and causes issues. That right displaced abomasum is a big problem. Uh, it's an emergency. Uh, it cuts off blood flow. It can, blood flow it can get really tight. That abomasum can actually die if you don't take care of it uh, quickly enough. Big deal you know if it twists on the right. I, I learned how to do a, an LDA a roll and tack when I lived in California a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. So it, uh, it, a lot of people like to do surgeries, but... I don't know. Many people don't do roll and tax uh, to fix the DA anymore, but um, you still hear about it a lot because it is yeah. less expensive. Maybe if it's not so bad, that's easy to do, but it, it can be quicker too. Yeah, absolutely. My experience with it though, is that uh, it just floats back up and it, it can float back up. Right. You, you don't have a really, you can tack the wrong thing. Um, you can, there can be a lot of complications. Some you need a decent amount of people to do it. If I'm by myself, which is a lot of the time when you're in practice, it's actually easier to just do the surgery. And if it's a straightforward one and there's nothing complicated about it, I can sedate, clip, do the surgery and be, you know, from turning my truck off to then getting off the farm, it could be 40 minutes tops, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're gone Uh, and I can do it by myself. So I think that's why the surgery has just become the way to go. And I can also see what's happening. I can feel what's going on. Mm-hmm. I can tell if it's adhered in a bad spot. Uh, I can tell if there's another issue that's causing it by feeling around, check on our liver while I'm in there, reach down and feel that reticulum and see if there's any anything that's causing an issue down there as well. So I can also check, I can feel our uterus and, and make sure that there's nothing wrong back there. So there's there's a lot of things, a lot of value in that surgery. Just a shameless plug for veterinarians doing surgeries. <laughs> Expensive surgeries. That, that's it. It's part that's, of that's, it. that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Uh, Girls got to eat. <laughs> exactly. Girls got to eat. So you got to get paid at some point. Uh, after the, the abomasum, you know, even after the omasum, after we leave the omasum, so rumen, omasum, abomasum, it's it's all very similar to a non-ruminant GI tract at that point. You know, you've got small intestine. The cecum is obviously different, large intestine, and they all, they all function very similar to to humans or any other species in that regard. Small intestine is involved in further digestion and absorbing more nutrients. Uh, cecum is further fermentation and possibly some some more nutrients absorption and then large intestine is mainly concerned with getting as much water back as we can to make it efficient let's talk about i I, we covered this in in episode four cows need to burp a lot and they do it a ton and they, they they have to because we are fermenting something in the rumen and that produces gas so it's then it has to go somewhere and it's usually easier to let that out the front than to push it all the way through that whole system and get it out the back. We got sensors that can measure that too. 
There's also <laughs> sensors for that. <laughs> we right. can we can measure all of that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, we need well, we're gonna have to do a series on all the different like crazy complex equipment that will now become more and more and more affordable and changing industry. That's right. We 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 we'll have to cover. I have new- a question, actually. Uh, let's do it. It's probably a stupid question. No. But right when we think about the rumen and we know it's huge and it has this liquid in it, this microbiome. Like how do how does the microbiome get there? Like you know the liquid and and the bugs and all of that. How does that end up there? It's a really good question. Most of it is probably coming from the feed source itself. Those bugs are, I mean, there's bacteria and everyone knows this, especially now. Uh, There's bacteria that are in the environment, they're everywhere. Uh, And and so some of this is just an evolutionary thing where cows were built to eat a certain thing and they've adapted to allow the microbes that are present on those things to help them do that. So that would be my take on it. I don't know if anybody could really 100% solve that question and say, this is exactly where they come from. It's probably a combination of of what's on the feed already, just exposure in the environment, and then creating a a system in the rumen and an environment in the rumen that promotes the growth of the correct bacteria. All right, let's wrap it there. Uh, There is an old but very good article on the Extension website uh, with very good information all about this topic. So if you need more, dig into it a little deeper, go to extension.umn.edu. If you have questions, comments, suggestions for us, scathing rebuttals, we are starting to pick up traffic in our email. You can always reach us at the room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Good work. And people are even listening to us in Australia. Special shout out to my mates from down under, Jace. Thank you for listening from Australia. And if you are listening from other, some other far-flung country, let us know. Maybe we'll shout you out. Exactly, exactly. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next episode. Rummaging through the rumen, yeah. venturing across the abomasum, roving through the reticulum, Meandering about the omasum, moving through the mouth, exiting through the esophagus.